In 2015, a Chinese-born Canadian actor and classical pianist was crowned Miss World Canada. She was a vocal human rights advocate in the pageant. After her victory, her father in Hunan province told her she had to stop speaking ill of the Chinese government or stop speaking to him. You see, the police had threatened him. This lady did not back down, speaking out in support of human rights in communist China. As a result, the regime in Beijing denied her entry to compete in that year's Miss World pageant held in China. The denial represented what many people have come to regard as China's increasing brazenness in extending its censorship and repression within and beyond its borders. Suddenly, the name Anastasia Lin became a name. She was, almost overnight, a front-page story in the New York Times. <laughs> she was soon widely praised for her courage, including in no less than four editorials in the Washington Post. And the Wall Street Journal published several laudatory op-ed articles, my favourite headline, published shortly after the 2016 presidential election, quote, a beauty queen Trump should meet. <laughs> Throughout the controversies, Anastasia has held herself in good grace. She told the New York Times, quote, I'm just an acting student and a beauty queen. What could they possibly be afraid of? <laughs> Anastasia is young and unafraid. She's also become a prominent contributor to newspapers around the world, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the Toronto Star, Sydney's Daily Telegraph. She's had two op-ed pieces there in the course of the last six to 12 months. And we hope a piece on Hong Kong in this weekend's Australian newspaper. We at CIS are proud to say she's one of us. And thanks to the generous support of one of our supporters, Simon Moore, who's here today, uh, we're happy to say that Anastasia is our scholar in residence for the year 2019. And I'd like to call on her to make some remarks before we have a conversation and open it up to the conversation. Please welcome Anastasia Lim. Hey, good luck. Well, thank you, Tom. And I want to thank the Centre for Independent Studies for inviting me to be here in the beautiful Australia for a month. And this would be my fourth time in Australia. I love this country because it's like Canada's cousin. We all have the same coin. And you guys are just a little more tan. We're a little paler. And you guys are better looking. But today I want to speak about why China is a threat to Australia. Because in the past week, being in Australia, I have been feeling a little uneasy, not sure where the debates stand, in opposed to, let's say, America. And I realized that the debate is whether we should choose China over the US. Well, I hope my insight 
as that I have been educated in a communist country for 13 years could offer you some insight to the mentality of the regime. Now, before we start, I want to tell you that I am not anti-China, and I'm not against the Chinese people. I was born there, lived 13 years there. Most of my family are still there, except for my mother. Even though the communist regime has threatened my father and threatened my grandparents and routinely visit them and intimidate them, I'm still in love with the country. Because I know that China's 5,000 years traditional culture is not represented by the political slogan of Communist Party. And I also know that China's philosophical and cultural tradition does not necessarily set it in opposition with Western value. And in fact, there had been historical precedent that China is a Confucius inward-oriented empire and is mostly peaceful toward the outside. If anything, it was in the 19th century that the Western um, civilization has invaded China, not the other way around. But what we're dealing with today is a one-party, authoritarian, mercantilist state that had been trying to target the West. And for them, it had been a Cold War. One of my friends, Andrew Hastie, has published an article recently, and I'm sure you have probably all read it because it was big news here. And he has been accused of having Cold War mentality. Now, today I want to present to you why that is true. Not his Cold War mentality, but China's. Now, when I was in China, I was a student leader. So part of my job, I, I was a communist student leader. And part of my job was to indoctrinate my fellow classmates uh, about the so-called government's enemy. So I have spread fake news about Falun Gong, Tibetans, Uyghurs, democratic activists, and also it was part of my job to organize students' group discussion in a class. And after the discussion, they all have to vote which side they're on. Now, why are they doing that? If we trace it back to Maoists and Stalin's way of organizing communism, now, Lenin won the revolution for the Russians. It's Stalin's job to stay in power, right? Now, communism's utopia will never happen. We all know that. But in order to legitimize their regime, they have to come up with some reason why they can deliver what they promised. So Stalin and Mao found this interpretation of the communist text and decided that internal, if they continue the struggle, the perpetual struggle with an imagined internal enemy that is supposedly working with an imagined Western enemy that constantly trying to undermine the stability of the system, they can find an excuse to somehow justify the corruption within the party. Does that make sense to anyone? Okay. So from Stalin's time, they have been going through internal purging, and that is the way for them to solidify power. And the enemies are not just internally, they're also in the West. There's this imaginary black hand from the West that constantly try to undermine China's sovereignty. And we see it in their rhetorics. Why do we always hear Chinese leaders saying, you guys are trying to undermine our sovereignty? Why? Now, I want to take it from a novel approach. Could we see, how does China see us? How do they, do they see us as a partner? Do they see us as a threat? Why do they constantly see us as someone who's trying to undermine their sovereignty? Perhaps they're trying to do the same to us. Now, that is a political science mirror imaging. The internal struggle is the reason why communists can stay in power. 
because they're doing it for the benefit of the mass. The people don't know better. The, the, the state is responsible to think and to benefit for the people. Has anyone of you watched Chernobyl on HBO very recently? Chernobyl? I strongly recommend it. And it's worth a HBO subscription. In that TV series, it actively, very accurately depicted what people's mentality are like under a communist regime. You lie, you protect themsel- yourself, and you can pretend that the truth is not there until something like Chernobyl blows up. That is the way they try to solidify their own power. So the Western liberalization, the enemy, has to be there in order to, for them to leg- legitimize that their rule. So no matter what you do, no matter how some of the Western officials kowtow to, to China, no matter what they say, you're going to offend them. You are going to be their enemy, and they are going to think that you're targeting them all the time. Now let's talk about the U.S.-China trade war. First, we have to understand what China is doing globally. One Belt, One Road, everyone's heard of it, right? It's disguised as investment everywhere in the world. But what it really is, is predatory capitalism. They will, they will buy off the local elites and join in ventures and um, start projects and partner with them and lend them the amount of money that they can't possibly pay back. And then they do the foreclosure and they seize control of the entire project. They use this way to control trade routes. And you just have to ask Sri Lanka, Africa, everywhere in the world, now even Italy. Port Venice is Chinese now. Can you believe that? And that is being used as a base for a railway all the way through Europe. Made in China 2025. They wanted, they declare, declare that they want to be the dominant advanced manufacturer of the world with the technology that they stole from us, that the US, the Western civilization have used. The innovation is the heart of capitalism. Why? And this is what I want to tell you. This is why I told you about my communist education. Because starting from t- kindergarten, all they ask you to do is to obey to obey, to never challenge, not to challenge your predecessor, not to challenge the knowledge that you learned. And in order to innovate, to be a scientist, you need to have a quality of the human being that is daring to challenge your predecessor, to make mistake, to fail. And that amount of knowledge is actually more valuable than when you actually succeed. And that is why China only have one Nobel Prize winner, and in medicine, That is why our heart, the crystal of Western capitalism, is being stolen by China. And they are then using that cheap technology to promote 5G everywhere because the rest of the country cannot afford to develop it on their own. And that's their information warfare. Now, what is Donald Trump doing? After China joined the WTO since 2001, They have been undermining the rules. They made many, many empty promises. They said that they are going to stop currency manipulation. They said they are going to remove the non-trade barriers. They said that they are going to do many, many other things, especially stop the intellectual property theft. But they didn't. And they got away with it over and over again. Why? Because in Obama-Clinton's time, 
the Chinese only have to offer them a few billion dollars of trade and the president go back to their country, oh, we made some kind of deal, there's a bit of compromise and we're fine. Let's move on. So they got away with it over and over again. This time we saw that the Chinese came to the table and they were desperate. Why? Because they're a trade-based economy. Their export means everything to them. Their domestic consumption is only 39%. Do you know where that is on the world stage? It's at the bottom with those African states. Their domestic assumption is not enough to support the growth that the government, the government is trying to target. So after trading with the West with so much trade deficit, they earned so much money for us, then they used that money to buy off our corn, our soybean, just to put us off even further. How is that fair? And at the same time, the US worker, the Japanese worker, the manufacturing worker lost their job. And the money that US government had to pay for these worker unemployment is way more than the benefit that they got those cheap products from China. And at the same time, why does China have that production advantage? Forced labor camps, 600 of them, all over China. These people, they are not criminals. The people who are locked inside cr uh, these camps are usually political or prisoners of conscience. They can be Christians, Falun Gong practitioners, Tibetans. And the government, they have an incentive to lock these people up because these forced labor camps often disguise themselves as factories to the outside world. If you're wearing a Made in China shirt, chances are the raw material might be produced in these labor camps. These people are subject to routine torture. They work long hours re in really inhumane conditions. That's how they get their cheap production costs lowered. And then they come back with those products and destroy our manufacturing jobs in the West. I want to stop here right now because I really want to open up the conversation with you. I want to hear your thought because China is a threat and is in Australia's national interest to do something about it right now. We cannot stand on the sideline anymore. Thank you very much. Well, Anastasia, as you know, one of our intellectual heroes here at, at CIS is the great British liberal John Stuart Mill, who, uh, who famously said, he who knows only his own position knows little of that. And I think I can speak for many Australians and many Westerners, many people in this room uh, who've had a different view about China for a long time. And our argument, and this was an argument that many liberals and conservatives alike often made, is that the more China became capitalist, the more likely it was going to become not just more prosperous, but more democratic and peace loving. Why were we in the West so naive? Has that worked at all? <laughs> no. Um. Well, in fairness, can I just put this to you though? Before Deng's reforms to, mark, to open up the economy, uh, there was something like 90% of mainland China was in abject poverty. Today, thanks to market reforms, only one in 10 are living in abject poverty. So no question that China has become more prosperous, correct? Uh, but why were they in poverty in the first place? The Great Famine, the Great Leap Forward, all those things brought turmoil onto the Chinese population. Many of them died. And the Communist Party has killed 85 million Chinese citizens. 
in peacetime. That's more than the two world war, work, uh, world war combined. And so to say that they liberated us from poverty, I heard this Chinese commentator, he used to say that. To say that someone has liberated you, someone has to capture you first. Well, they did that <laughs> first, and then they did the reverse. Now you're thanking them for what they have done? <laughs> but, but clearly, China in the last 10 to 15 years, as you make very clear, has become more authoritarian at home and more uh, aggressive abroad. Uh, why has this happened? Why were we in the West naive about this, though? Well, they have been in a, tr uh, in a cold war. They have this cold war mentality forever. And they do look at the West like an enemy. I know this because it was taught to me for 13 years of my life. And if we look at different fronts, in the media, in education, they're infiltrating everything. They're having Confucius Institute here to broadcast their propaganda. They're have, they are buying off Hollywood studios. Can you believe that AMC is China now, DreamWorks, Lionsgate, these are all Chinese-owned company. It's more and more unlikely that we're going to see a Hollywood movie that's produced about Tiananmen Square or Cultural Revolution or the persecution of Tibetans and Falun Gong. This self-censorship is encouraged by the Chinese money, and this is in the cultural front. Now, if we look at an NGO, China recently has banned foreign NGO from operating in China because they say that uh, you guys are going to have some subversive, submersive motive to operate here, to undermine our society. And why are they saying that? Because their own organization, student, professional association, we see it all on Australian campuses, well too well, right? That they're going out to be the extended arm of Chinese propaganda and to target those uh, Hong Kong students. And the universities are turn a blind eye on it. Mm. And this is their Cold War. They have been engaging in economic warfare. And the reason why you feel like there's nothing you can really do about it because you're too engaged is part, it's a result of this warfare. Now, many Western China watchers over the years, um, on both left and right, if you like, I think of Henry Kissinger, the Republican National Security Advisor to Presidents Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford, Zybrzynski, who's passed away a couple of years ago, but he was a national security advisor to Jimmy Carter. Here in Australia, Stephen Fitzgerald, who was Gough Whitlam's senior advisor. Owen Harries, former senior advisor to um, Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser, also a CIS fellow here. They would say, what you're saying is true about this repressive authoritarian regime, but they would come back to you and say that surely context matters. And they'd make the point that in the past century, China has experienced the collapse of a traditional regime warlordism, civil war, invasion, a famine that killed millions, millions and mass terror in the form of the Cultural Revolution and, of course, the dramatic socio-economic upheavals of recent times. From Beijing's perspective, this is their argument, fear of things getting out of hand and a return to the chaos and the mass violence of the relatively recent past, they're very real concerns. So... If they're right, isn't any country with that kind of history likely to put an unusually high premium on stability and order at home? As you said, very right. That is their rhetoric. That's what they have been using to justify their control over Chinese people. If we want to look at a massive country with different language, different religion, and different ideas of people, we look at India. They're a democracy. 
And they have gone through mm-hmm. terrible stuff in the past too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But their government is not saying, yeah, because our people are too complex and um, it's hard to control, so we need to crack down on them. Mm. In the Washington Post just recently, many high-profile former government officials, intellectuals, journalists signed a, a joint letter. It was 150 prominent China watchers. And among other points they made was, don't assume that China is a monolith or that the views of its leadership are set in stone. Um, Are we placing too much emphasis on the views of one man here, Xi Jinping? It's not a monolith, but that's why they go through the purging process since the beginning of their establishment. Every time when there's internal conflict, the internal fight, there is going to be a group that's going to be sacrificed. And it's not like you lose the election here. You lose your family, your reputation, your everything. that's the way they solidify. So if they do have internal split outside to the outside world, they're going to be in unity mm. because their interest is the same, is to remain the communist regime in power. Mm. Our mutual friend, uh, Andrew Hastie, who will be a, a speaker at this year's Concilium on this very subject, um, he had this opinion piece in the Sydney Morning Herald, which you mentioned, and his argument was uh, that we in Australia were not being alive enough to the dangers of an ever, po- ever more powerful China uh, and John Mearsheimer, our guest last week, said more or less the same thing. And I put this question to Professor Mearsheimer, and I'll put it to you. Is there a danger that people like you, Andrew Hastie, John Mearsheimer, the so-called nutters, as Paul Keating called them in the security establishment on the eve of the election, is there a danger you're overlooking China's weaknesses and limitations? When we all talk about demography, John Howard's fond of saying that China will grow old before it grows rich. But even if they sort out those long-term demographic challenges, they've got pervasive air and water pollution, corruption, which you mentioned, uh, high levels of debt. Um, Are we exaggerating China's strength here? Uh, I don't think we're exaggerating China's strength, but we also shouldn't exaggerate China's weaknesses. Mm. And that is why I think it's a very good argument that why Australia should not choose China over the states. Because China's economy, the financial scheme, is a Ponzi scheme. I know this because my father is a businessman in China and was before the Communist Party destroyed his company with a few hundred employees after my scandal. Um, So he told me that businesses cannot survive without bank loans. All they do is loaning more money, and this is the bubble economy, right? The bigger the business, the more money they owe. So how is an economy going to survive like that? And they just keep printing RMB. The thing is, they also did something else, so we haven't seen the bubble burst yet. At the beginning of um, communist China, all the land are state-owned. Right now, they're selling part of the land to get back some of the cash. So that's why we are not seeing like the bubble bursting right away. But once the real estate price, the real estate bubble started to burst, then we're going to see something completely different. Yeah, but uh, see, many people in this city especially would say that China is our largest trade partner by far. Uh, it's helped uh, Australia weather the global financial storm more than a decade ago. Uh, let me put these views to you. This is Linda Jacobson from China Matters, and she says, quote, Whatever you think about China financially and economically, there is no market that will replace China for decades as far as Australia is concerned. She goes on to say, We can quibble over how we got here and how we can all agree this kind of dependency is very unhealthy, The fact of the matter is Australia is hugely dependent on China for its prosperity. Your response? 
I like to respond uh, respond to that with a Chinese quote. In China, we have a saying. It's called, "Don't drink the poison to stop your thirst." <laughs> <laughs> Because there is going to be an eventual result if you keep doing that. Now, Australia is a blessed country. You're blessed with abundant resources, and you have not going through an economic recession for a while. Yes, but the freedom you have here was fought by your forebears, your father's generation, your grandfather's generation, not fought in the World War II. Freedom is something that is deserving of being preserved. You don't know it. Until you're about to lose it, just ask the people in Hong Kong.、Mm. Well, talking about Hong Kong, before we go to questions, seven million people—they're—they're in the front line in the fight for liberty. We're all with them, but they have very little margin of error. I heard someone on the BBC World Service this morning、uh, make the point that there was a danger that these protesters and demonstrators might be overstepping the mark here with the vandalisation, vandalism of the、um, the Legislative Council a few weeks ago. And with these airport shutdowns, is there a danger they might overplay their hand and that China intervenes, and that could just crush the whole thing? Well, there are two things that's in play here. First, the misinformation war that China always、uh, dehumanizes and spreads false information about its enemy. So, how escalated the violence is? That's the first question. And so far, from if we observe all the reports, most of the violence are perpetrated from the police to the civilian. And secondly, what are these people fighting? They're witnessing their civil order going down the drain. On July 21st, there was something that happened in Yuanlong. It's called the Yuanlong Incident.、Um, at night, there were about a hundred people, gangsters, dressed in white shirt. They went to the subway to start attack civilians, and the civilians called called the police. The police just said, "Stay off the street." So these people continue to beat civilians for an hour.、Mm. As soon as they left, a minute after the police arrived in the scene, no arrest was made on site. Later on, there are speculations about, and and there people saw that elected official who are pro China has shaken hand with the people who are beating up the civilians. This is a coordinated act of the police, the gangster, and the government. To put terror on these people, they are just like us. They grew up in democracy. They know the rule of law. Just imagine if one day your police stop to your like call to robbery or something, and you're just there to defend for yourself. Like, how scary would that be? So the anxiety that's felt by the Hong Kong people、mm. is imminent.、Mm. Okay, now questions. Yeah, Rafe Champion. Look, You remind me of, of, of、uh, Arthur Kersler in 1948 when the, the Cold War was just hotting up during the blockade of Berlin. He said the future of civilization depends on the, the conflict between the communists and ex-communists, because only the ex-communists know what we're up against. And that's your story. <laughs> well, I, I guess so because there is no way that I would want to return to the life, the way of life that I had in China. No way. And it's not just about the economic prosperity; it's about the way that they have been telling you what you cannot be since you were a kindergarten. The way they tell you that there is a perfect way, which is the ideal of communist, and you have to constantly strive to be that way, to earn your love, to be their model student, to be their model daughter, and to behave in a way that's so outwardly oriented. 
Now, we all know that compassion, like Shakespeare put this perfectly, the quality of mercy is not strained. It drops as the gentle ring from heaven upon the place beneath. Mercy comes from within. It's not being taught or obligated by the outside world. That's what the social credit system is making Chinese people do. They're monitoring every, the social credit system, we all know about that, the China's new digital, uh, digital overseeing God. So they're watching Chinese people's every single move. They will give you a score if you help an elderly across the street. That's considered a good deed for them. So what started to happen is that we see maids, hired workers, setting a house on fire and going inside to rescue the baby out so that they can increase their social credit score. <laughs> this is how they try to make everybody as robot. As Stalin famously said, the engineering of the soul is way more th important than the production of the tanks. So cheers to you, the engineer of soul, which is the writers and the artist. They use that also as a tool. There's no way I want to return to that. Mm. Yes, next question. I, I, yes, thank you. Um, I'm Marae from Vision China Times, and uh, welcome to Australia. It's always really good to hear you speak <laughs> every time. Um, just uh, my, my question is, you've been around the world to different countries to raise awareness about human rights situation in China, um, but there has been really limited um, international practical solutions or practical measures to help improve the, uh, human rights, um, uh, the human rights situation in China. What are your um, comments around um, the actual um, reasons behind this? Well, China's economic warfare, which has been planned for a very long <laughs> time, is a huge factor in that. People don't feel like they can speak up because of money and engagement. And we all saw the result of that. So that's why I feel like what Trump is doing right now, even though he's not a values guy, he's not a human rights guy, but it's for the first time that a US leader actually has the backbone to confront China in the way he does. And so I think the solution to that is we need to help ourselves and see who <coughs> our true ally is. And it's not about choosing US over China. It's not about, oh, if we get in trouble with China, is go US gonna come to our aid? If not, then we join China. It's not about that. It's about protecting the way you want to live and your grandchildren wants to live and not become a tributary state of China. Talking about Trump and human rights, though, I was listening to a Wall Street Journal podcast this morning on the way to work on the bus, and uh, Paul Jago and the editorial team were saying that they were criticising Trump for his equivocal response to the situation in Hong Kong, and they said that if indeed the PLA moves into Hong Kong, which is obviously conceivable, the Democrats will destroy him next year, that he lost Hong Kong. I think Trump's reaction partly is because that is not his focus. And Hong Kong, by name, is a sovereign part of China. And he's not playing up the human rights rhetoric very much, and we have seen it in the past with uh, many different countries. But it doesn't mean that what he does, his main focus is not going to have an effect on the general human rights situation. And it's conceivable he might be talking to Xi privately. We just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Tim James. Anastasia, uh, thanks for your great courage and conviction. It's great to have you with us. Uh, there were media reports in Australia, I think, last week of uh, Chinese government agents or officials uh, using tools such as facial recognition software 
in respect of Australian students protesting over what was happening in Hong Kong. Um, do you think that's true? Um, and what should the Australian government be doing about it? It's a pretty alarming notion for Australian citizens like me that that should be happening in our country. Mm -hmm. Well, I wouldn't be surprised because they have been doing that um, in other parts of the world too. And we have many examples of that. Australian government needs to use this chance to, s to show the Chinese government that we are not going to compromise. Because China actually needs us more than we need them as collective. If we show that we're not going to compromise, and this is yeah. communist sort of MO, that they don't respect strength. No, they don't respect anything, but they fear strength. When you show that you're not going to be compromised, they can threaten you, they can try again, but eventually they will back off. And that is also a, the reverse example is very good in, you know, Canada recently arrested a CFO of Huawei. Um, so in retaliation, that was on US request, but in retaliation, the Chinese arrested two Canadian citizens and sentenced another to jail. Why is that? Why don't they arrest the Americans? Because they asked her mm. to be arrested. Mm. It's because Canada is a weak link. Our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has shown no courage to confronting China, even when like there's a dozen of Canadians who are in China in jail right now. And two of them are in there because of this reason. So we need to show them we're not going to compromise. Sophie York. Anastasia, thank you very much. This is just music to my ears. I've been following it for a few years. I lecture in public international law from time to time. Um, I'm just concerned, though, because what you're saying rings true to me, just from um, what I've picked up over the years. But we have a situation where our ports, so the Port of Darwin, Port of Newcastle, Port of Melbourne, under state-controlled corporations controlled by China, end up taking over these strategic ports. And our representatives in the parliaments don't seem to mind that there's no reciprocity and that this is foolhardy behaviour. We also have a foreign influence transparency scheme that you look up the register and it doesn't seem to net anyone, not, not the corporations that are busy gobbling up our assets and things like that. So I'm just curious, um, what do you recommend for, to our parliamentarians? Do you speak to them? What's their response? Um, I, I hear everything you're saying and I agree with it, but unless we actually have people in power in Australia who are willing to actually do something tangible, then all we're doing is having very engaging <laughs> talk fests at, at different venues. Um, but what's your view on that? That is the good thing of having a democracy, right? Your parliamentarians actually listen to you because they want to get elected. And you did have... <laughs> and, you did <laughs> and you did have someone that's very courageous who spoke up last week. But what did he get? He got con the condemnation from his own party and from his opposition. In situations like this, that's when the public comes in. We need to use whatever chance we have to bring this topic to the table until they listen to us. It might sound a little grassroots, but I guess that's really powerful but sometimes. The, the pushback will come from a lot of people who obviously acknowledge that uh, our prosperity in the last decade has been underwritten by China's bull run and their massive appetite for our raw materials. So this is a very complicated issue for a lot of Australians and indeed many people in the region that do rely on the China market. They do rely on the China market, but you always have to seek plan B, right? To, re to rely yourself completely on a totalitarian regime 
And they are going to, with every single chance they have, to attack your sovereignty. And this is only going to intensify. It's not going to lessen down. They're not going to change as long as they're communist. So you need to think of a plan B. Uh, Sui, and I should say, you, you left China, you were born in China in 1990, and you left China to move to Canada in 2003. Sui was from mainland China, and you left in 1991 to come to Australia. Great to have you here. Question? Hi. Uh, uh, I'm glad to hear your um, passion for human rights in China. Um, just following that, that woman's question, that given the fact that human rights movement has had a limited impact on Chinese politics. Uh, what might be the practical solution? And also you acknowledge that um, in the West, because economic solution is more important than human rights solution, right? So what do you think, what kind of uh, solution you can think that can have a real impact on Chinese politics? Uh, this first question. And the second question is you, you think that don't, uh, okay, China's a threat. And what do you expect Australian or governments to do? Mm -hmm. And one thing is, okay, you said Chinese always regard Western country as enemy. In propaganda can be true, but in the real life, they all regard the Westerners as the real friends. They even kowtow to Westerners. Look at what happened to the Chinese government now. They sent top officials to, to, to Washington, D.C. to cut to Trump. That's what they're doing now. Mm. And now is as good a time as any is to say in the 2016 election, I think Trump was pretty popular with the Chinese people. Very right? popular. Yeah. And the reason is kind of, out, it's very out of the blue. It's very random because Chinese with the traditional value we have, that's still not being smeared by the Communist Party. We have very good work ethic and we respect people who are very disciplined and successful in their way that they work hard. Trump's entire family has been praised by the Chinese nationals because he had very, uh, a few very successful children. They all went to great school. They all built themselves up to be successful people. And that's one reason. It's really random. It's not for political reason that he's very successful. Yeah, yeah and just to change the subject completely, um, late last year, you were on ABC television in this country and your interview was, uh, was cancelled during the live television interview, and they cited concerns about your affiliations. Tell us about that controversy. Mm -hmm. So my local contact got a phone call from the ABC, the world producer, saying that it, the decision comes from higher up, that because of my affiliations, I cannot be on air live. And I was like, I've been on BBC, I've been on CNN, I've been everywhere live, and I didn't say anything all that extraordinary, right? And then um, when the Australian confronted them, they say, no, this didn't happen. Now, my guess is that um, probably someone, I, I wouldn't assume that directly from the Chinese consulate, because someone who has connection, I've decided that um, mm. my speaking up for Falun Gong, for Tibetans, these are very sensitive topics. And when they use the word affiliation, you know it's a Chinese rhetoric, because no one in the West would use that kind of term when uh, to associate me with a human rights group. Mm. You also said, I think, after this controversy erupted, that China had used the Confucius Institute's education programs to extend its soft power as detailed in the Canadian documentary, In the Name of Confucius. Tell us about that. 
Mm-hmm. So in Toronto School Board, something really exciting happened. Um, Toronto had a lot of Confucius Institute, and then the parents they got really worried because they actually teach you communist propaganda songs in those. Th- th- we saw footage of Caucasian students singing, I love the Communist Party and the great leader Mao is gonna lead us to glory. <laughs> that ridiculous. So the parents got really concerned, so they went on the street, they protested, and it worked. Toronto School Board banned Confucius Institute. And that is something you can do as well. Next question. Hi, my name is Catherine Varga. I was born and brought up in a communist country. So all this is deja vu. And what, I <laughs> what, what I've noticed and really pains me because I have grandchildren here as well, is that these are, we are talking a lot about tactic, tec- tactical situation. What should we do now? We now opened our eyes and suddenly we see nobody thinks about strategical situation and the most important strategic tools that we have is education in schools and what happens with the media. Nobody teaches anybody about what happened with Stalin, what happened with Ceausescu, what happened with Chavez. Nobody, nobody teaches children about liberty and this concept. So they are taught, it's not, it's not enough to have Confucius, they are taught in schools, in private school and in kindergarten, communist terminology and uh, criteria and what they should love. And if nobody attaches that, we are just going to chase and run after our... I I think that is a really valid point. It's the same situation everywhere. (laughs) They teach diversity training, but they don't teach what communism actually does. Um, So there are some NGOs in um, US that is actually working on this, bringing speakers like me into university campuses. And it's amazing how these millennials or Generation Zers, when they have heard of a communist survivor for the first time, it's as if they have never even heard of what communism is actually about. You explain to them your actual experiences and they're like, oh my God. And I was just wearing a Mao t-shirt yesterday. (laughs) So this information is crucial and I think we need to take it to ourselves as a task to bring this information to the ge- uh, younger generation. Thank you. Next question. Uh, my name is Thomas Russell. In Australia, as you probably know, in our recent political history, we've had a, a politician or, or somebody approximating a politician rise to fame through a largely anti-Asian immigration platform. And as a nation, this led to a debate And as a nation, we ultimately agreed that racism is a bad thing and we mustn't be anti-Asian immigration. And that's led now to extra sensitivity at all levels within Australia when it comes to criticising China. So how do we break through the barrier of criticising China on its merits in an appropriate way at the same time as distinguishing ourselves either individually or through our platform as being anti-China or China bashing as a culture and a nation? Well, you can tell them that the Chinese Communist Party is the biggest racist against Chinese people. They say that our people are not intelligent enough to receive free information. We're not responsible enough to hold freedom election. We're not even responsible enough for our own voices. If they believe that about my people, how they're not racist. Now that saying that and speaking up against China is racist, that rhetoric is used by Chinese government everywhere. And I have journalist friends who try to write about China who have been accused of that. But we need to separate the Chinese government with the Chinese people. 
When you speak up against the Chinese government, you are actually speaking on behalf of the Chinese people, the people who never had their voice heard. I have to say, when I uh, get into cabs and I often have ethnic Chinese cab drivers, uh, that when we get onto this subject, they all too often denounce the Chinese government back back from where they came. It, so there's very there's a very strong uh, uh, anti-Beijing view among the Chinese diaspora, at least in my experience in Sydney and Brisbane. And there is a very good point in there that there's going to be communist-sponsored groups here that are going to say, we represent the Chinese community, but actually they don't. Mm. They overstate their membership and push for communist agenda here in Australian soil. It happens everywhere in the world. So you need to be very careful where the membership really comes from, who they actually represent, and what their connections are. Bruce McCain. Anastasia, I'd like to just continue with this discussion of the distinction between the party and the people. And um, I think Australia has to find a way to gradually uh, disassociate itself with China as its main economic partner. Uh, as Linda Jacobs said, that's something pretty difficult to do. But um, you spoke of uh, China 2025 and you spoke of um, the One Belt, One Road uh, plan. Australia has really distanced itself from both of those initiatives following U.S. concerns, valid concerns, but on the other side, if you look at China's concerns, leave the party out of it for the moment, think about China as an economic entity. China wants to become able to innovate in its own way without dependency on foreign technology. It doesn't want to have dependency on Intel computer chips, etc. And it's easy to see that as a kind of dark conspiracy, but on the other hand, if you think about China as an economic entity and as not a political entity, it's a, it's a valid concern. The One Belt, One Road, likewise, is, is an expansion of China into the Middle, middle, middle East and uh, sorry, Middle Europe and further beyond. But the point I'm trying to make, I think, here is that we have to find a way to understand in some depth these initiatives, see where we can take advantage of them, Australian firms have been discouraged from involving themselves in the One Belt, One Road, yet American firms are, are doing quite well in that by supplying materials. So I think we have to be able to be careful about understanding China in depth. And while I applaud you for what you're doing and raising the concern about the party, I do believe we also want to try to understand where, we, where our interest uh, economically can be enhanced. Mm. That's a good question, one that a lot of people in the business community will raise. That US has really engaged in one belt, one yeah, belt although Australia. Yeah, although was making the point last week, though, that the business community in the United States is more divided about China than it is here because the high-tech community has essentially joined forces with the Pentagon, whereas here the high-tech community is very much close with the financial community on mm -hmm. China. Okay, very important intervention. Um, next question, Tony Berg. Anastasia, I'm interested in, in one thing, um, or more things, but th this particular thing. <laughs> <coughs> um, um, the, uh, uh, there, there are millions of Chinese students around the world, in, in Australia, in Canada, in the United States, and, and elsewhere. And yes, the, the, the Confucius Society sort of, uh, you know, uh, take an interest in them as to, you know, Etc. But surely those students pick up things from the the societies that we live in, and and 
I, I've got to imagine that they come back to you know China, talk to their families, talk to their friends, and say it is different out there, and there are these freedoms and so on that we don't enjoy. I mean, doesn't that happen? And mm. and and isn't that something that might over time develop in China? Well, that's a really good point. Thank you very much. The premise for that is that if your university actually teaches Western <laughs> civilization. <laughs> But we're seeing something that's a little different. And you had a very good piece on that in the time <laughs> last year, didn't you? Yeah. yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I think people expect, and I have one Australian friend who told me, I usually just assume that these Ch Chinese people, when they got off the plane, immediately they breathe the air of freedom <laughs> and they're going to change their mind. No, it doesn't work like that. To be honest, for me, because I was raised in Chinese com um, elite communist family, because my father was a communist member, and my mother, uh, she was a professor in China. So for me, living there, except for the indoctrination and the constantly you're being watched over all of that, economically and everything else in your daily life, it feels quite the same. Like there isn't going to be a drastic difference. And as Tom said earlier, yes, the infrastructures in China right now, for the people who live in big cities, will feel like, if not even better than living in the West. But the thing is, it takes a constant self-examination and an e engagement to familiarize oneself with the Western democratic institution and process. And that's not a self-sort of initiated act that every Chinese are going to do. And to be honest, maybe 10, 20% of them would actually do that. So that's why you see a lot of Chinese students, they would defend communism, like I did the first year in high school, in their social e economic classes in the West. They didn't go through that detoxing process from communism, so they're still going to keep that self-censoring that's going on. Anything that you guys say that's against China is against China, is anti-China. That patriotic sentiment is going to filter everything out. April Pomley. Thanks very much for your remarks. It's very interesting. Um, I wanted to comment about so many people saying that China is Australia's most important economic partner. I don't know if you've been here long enough to realize that there is a difference between the most important economic partner and the biggest trading partner. China is Australia's biggest trading partner. China is America's biggest trading partner. There are, they buy a lot of stuff from a lot of countries, but there is 993 billion US dollars here in American foreign direct investment, 420,000 people work for American companies, American companies spend a billion dollars a year on R&D. So there's a very long and deep economic relationship between the United States and Australia. The trade to China could get cut off tomorrow through currency manipulation or tariffs or the ports aren't processing your coal right now, we don't know why. Um, you know, th that, that could change very quickly on, on the turn of a, of a dime. So I just want to point that out because I think there's a misconception even here among Australians about who the most important economic partner is. But I'd like to challenge the collective firepower on the stage to come up with a new term. I grew up in Washington, D.C. in the 1980s with Ronald Reagan, and Cold War to me means something different than what's happening right now with China. I'm not preparing to evacuate, um, <laughs> hiding under my desk. Um, it's a different kind of, of a threat. Um, we, Other than a few spies, there weren't 
millions of Russians living in America. The 2010 census said there are 4 million Chinese-born Americans living in America. We weren't buying anything from Russia in the 1980s. It's a very different relationship. So I would challenge you to come up with a new term so that people can't debunk your argument by saying, no, 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 it's not a Cold War, it's something different. Find a different term that we can use effectively to talk about what's happening. In some way, comparing to the Cold War, thank you very much for your question. Comparing to the Cold War, the Soviets weren't engaged with the rest of the world economically, and uh, they failed in that front, actually. Um, so what do you think? Well, I, I follow the advice of uh, Professor John Mearsheimer, and for those of you who miss Mearsheimer, you can easily see him on our videos online, and he makes the point, this was his thesis in 2001, uh, the tragedy of great power politics. So it's great power politics. At the end of the Cold War, there was a unipolar world. It was the United States that was really the top dog. Uh, but now we're increasingly having a more bipolar moment. And you're right, it's not going to be like a Cold War, but there'll be an increasingly intense strategic and economic competition between Washington and Beijing. And uh, that presents all sorts of uh, problems and dilemmas for allies like Australia because we're wedged in many respects. But I'd call it great power politics. And in many respects, what China's doing, just thinking strategically, is not all that odd. Uh, all great powers, as their definition of national interests rise and grow, they'll start to spread their wings into areas on which their future prosperity and stability depend. And they're creating a sphere of influence just like the Americans did in the 19th century when they kicked out the European powers from the Western Hemisphere. The difference here is that the United States will go to great lengths to stop China dominating the region. So I think it's this tragedy of great power politics that's happening. That's what I'd say. So if you want to learn more about that, uh, listen to Pres Professor Mearsheimer on the cis.org.au. And that's about it for today. I want to thank you all for being here. Please join me in thanking Anastasia Lin. That was great, Anastasia. Very good. And if you're interested, please come here next Thursday night. Anastasia will be debating Jason Yatsen Lee, Salvatore Babones on the, the question of Australia's choice. That'll be here. It'll be moderated by my colleague, Sue Windybank, who heads our China program. And then in early September, I think it's September 9, in this room, it's a lunch for Professor Simon Heffer, who's a distinguished British conservative columnist and historian. He'll be on Brexit, which he supports, and Boris Johnson, whom he detests. You don't want to miss that. <laughs> See you then. And thank you so much for being here. <laughs> that was great. <laughs>